Welcome to this episode of Blue Collar Theology. I am Simeon Brazel. We have started a discussion of translation. We have landed on the truth that translation must be word for word for it to be trustworthy as God's word. We've also started a discussion on what texts we should be trusting for translation, as not all texts are equally valid. Today, we are going to deep dive into the origins of one of the main manuscripts of the critical text, the Codex Sinaiticus. To dive into the origins of the Sinaiticus, I need to introduce you to a few historical characters. The first is a man by the name of Tischendorf. Tischendorf was born in the early 1800s and was quite a scholar. He was educated in the best schools and was afforded access to antiquities growing up. He was of the German school of religious thought which held that the New Testament had been lost to antiquity. He therefore set out on a quest to recover as many manuscripts as he could find. To make a long story short, he found himself in a monastery in Mount Sinai. Here he discovered what he believed to be the most ancient existing copy of the scriptures in the known world at the time. He dated it at about AD 400. He stole several portions of the codex and went back to Europe. His claim was that these texts were in a pile that was being used for kindling for a fire. However, the monks at Mount Sinai to this day still claim that he stole the documents from them after they told him he could not take them to Europe. Not to mention, this codex was made of animal skins. It would have made extremely poor kindling. Plus, the monks in the library of the monastery would have far too much respect for God's word than to allow it to be used this way. Their job is to preserve documents, not destroy them. Tissendorf would later return for the rest of the Codex in 1853. At this point, he had received much wealth and acclaim due to his discovery of this ancient document. He returned asking for the rest of the document. The monks refused to release them to him, even though he claimed he only wanted to borrow them. He returned once more in 1859. This time, he asked only to copy the manuscripts. He and two other scholars managed to copy the entire manuscript in just two months. It normally takes years to do a thorough job of accurately copying such a large volume. What's worse is it appears that Westcott and Hort, the compilers of the critical text, only ever got to see these hurried copies and never the actual document. Their work was subject to every error made by the copyists. However, Tischendorf's sketchiness does not stop there. Tischendorf attempted a new tactic to gain permanent access to the Sinaiticus. He told them that if they would give him the manuscript altogether, the Tsar of Russia would back a political appointee that was friendly to their monastery. They again refused. So, he went above their heads. He went to the governing body of the Greek Orthodox Church. He asked them if he could borrow it to produce a facsimile copy for the church in St. Petersburg, Russia, in time for their 1,000-year anniversary of the Russian monarchy. He claimed it would be returned before then. They eventually agreed and ordered the monastery to give him the codex with the understanding that it would be returned. Of course, it never was. The literary churchman in 1862 wrote that after much research to find record of Tissendorf getting official permission to loan the document to the government of Russia, no record was found. The monks still held that Tischendorf had made up the whole affair to get his hands on the Sinaiticus. Do not worry, it gets worse. The second man I need to introduce you to is a man by the name of Simonides. 
Simonides was a language scholar and an excellent calligrapher. He was well known for his ability to write in the styles of ancient documents and was often commissioned to make facsimile copies of documents for display in various museums and private collections. He was also a collector of antiquities as well as an active member of the Orthodox Church. In 1839, his uncle Benedict had the idea to present Emperor Nicholas I of Russia with a facsimile copy of the Old and New Testaments written in the ancient style on ancient materials. He asked a man named Dionysius, who was the monastery's official calligrapher, to do it, but he declined, saying that the task was too difficult. So Benedict asked his nephew, Simonides, to do it. He accepted. He found in the monastery a large blank volume and used those pages, along with some in their possession, to do it. He finished all of the Old and New Testaments, along with the book of Barnabas and part of the book of Hermes. Then he found himself under the patronage of someone else after the death of his uncle Benedict. So he gave up on the project and was advised to send it to Mount Sinai, which he did. When they received it, the monks there were so impressed with his work that they urged him to complete it. Some years later, in 1852, he returned to Mount Sinai. When he found it, it had been significantly altered and was in bad shape. Note that this was between the first and second visits of Tischendorf. Pages were missing, and the binding was torn in several places. He decided to leave the document and not try to finish the project. So according to Simonides, he created the Sinaiticus in the mid-19th century, which would make it not ancient at all, and certainly not trustworthy as scripture. He had the skills to do so, and it seems his motives were pure. One day, a copy of a leaflet showing Tischendorf's discovery found its way into the hands of Simonides. He immediately recognized it as his own work. In the interest of preserving the true scriptures, he reached out to Tischendorf and let him know of the error. He was immediately called a fraud. So he took his story to the papers and presented people who could attest to his having been commissioned to make it. Unfortunately, all but one of the men mentioned had already died. Remember, there are no cell phones, so Simonides could not have known that they were no longer alive. Tischendorf was so rooted in the religious system of the day that everyone went to bat for him, including the media outlets and religious papers. Simonides' one living witness was soon discredited and tossed under the proverbial bus. Simonides, to this day, is known as Simonides the Forger, because Tischendorf began to claim anything and everything Simonides had sold or given to museums and private collectors was fake. Even things that were commissioned works were claimed by Tischendorf to have been sold as legitimate items, even though the purchasers would vouch for Simonides that they had commissioned the work. It did not matter. The media machine was on Tischendorf's side. He was already acclaimed by the church to have made the most important biblical discovery ever. Simonides was all but buried. Only his closest friends would continue to defend his character for the rest of his life. Now, much of this is Simonides' word versus Tischendorf's word. What we must consider is the character and motive of each man. Tischendorf's character is dubious at best. The monastery in Mount Sinai still to this day claims that the document was stolen. They would never use a document containing scripture as kindling for fire, so that story was obviously a lie. Not to mention, skins are a terrible thing to try and start fire with. Tischendorf's many trips to the monastery also indicate their unwillingness to part with it. 
There is also no record of the monastery gifting the document to Russia. As the document was never returned, Tischendorf's story seems to have quite a few holes. Tischendorf also became quite famous and rich due to the discovery of this document. He had much to lose if it was discovered that it was a fake. Simonides, on the other hand, was a well-known and liked individual prior to his rub with Tischendorf. Tischendorf himself had said that he was the most capable calligrapher he knew prior to this incident. He had nothing to gain from trying to tear down Tischendorf. If Simonides was lying about it, it would only be able to destroy another man. His path did not even cross with Tischendorf much, and there was no bad blood between them. He did have everything to lose if proven wrong, though. So why would he risk everything for literally no gain? Now, let us consider some forensic evidence. Up until recently, these things were not an option to us. In the 19th century, they dated documents by eye. They would look at a document and judge by the style of the writing and the quality of the materials how old it was. This made forgery extremely easy. There have been many confirmed cases of forgery during this time. All someone needed was access to older materials or the ability to make them look old. Animal skins were often stained with coffee or other materials to give them the appearance of age. This was something Simonides certainly had the skills for, but he did so legally. What is interesting is that everything Simonides ever touched was accused of being forgery, except for the one thing he actually said he forged. Up until now, the documents have not been available for scrutiny but digital scans have recently been made of them. I will link a place to view them in the notes. One thing that is interesting is how white the pages are. Pages that are from AD 400 would certainly be yellowed to a much more significant degree. Even since the original finding, the pages have yellowed significantly according to the museum where it is being held in England. When compared to the Vaticanus, it looks snow white, Animal skins do not stay white like this unless they are kept in a vacuum-sealed environment. This is how the United States preserves the Declaration of Independence, and it is made on paper. Furthermore, Simonides claimed that there were several signature marks he made in the document so that it could be identified as his. Artists often do this when they make forgeries of originals for museums. Simonides provided the locations of these marks publicly. Conveniently, in each place where he said there would be a mark, there is now an imperfection in the document. Either it has been scratched out or cut out entirely. Some places have been obviously cut with shears. Simonides challenged Tizendorf to appear publicly with the document and he would show everyone where the marks were, even though according to Tizendorf, Simonides had never seen the document before. Tischendorf declined and continued to defame Simonides. These were only claims until recently when these digital photos were released. Think of it like this. You have two friends. They are both baseball card collectors. You on occasion go with them into collector stores just to humor their hobby. You have watched as they peruse the store looking for diamonds in the rough. One day, you go to a store with friend number one. We will call him John. The clerk immediately tells you and John to get out of his store. When you leave, you ask what that was about, and John says, Oh, that guy just doesn't like me very much. Later, while talking to your other friend, Carl, in the same store, he tells you that John stole a card from the store, but they did not catch it on camera. 
While you are in the store, Carl talks with the clerk like they are old friends. This would still be one man's word against another. As a third party, you do not have enough evidence to go on. What if a few years later, John put that same card up for sale at an auction? The store clerk comes to the auction, but when he sees the card is up for sale, immediately claims it was stolen. He tells everyone where the small imperfections in the printing of the card are, as well as a small fold mark in the corner. John refuses to allow anyone to see it, but when it finally appears in the auction, the places where the imperfections are have been scratched off or torn away. Carl sides with the store owner, and you are caught in the middle. Again, this is not perfect evidence of theft, but it certainly is not looking good for John. The fact that he would not allow anyone to see the evidence makes for a bad look. So Codex Sinaiticus is far from having a clean history. Forensic evidence points to tampering, as well as giving it a much younger date than it is claimed to have. This makes it a poor document to be used for the translation of scripture. Its proponents continue to discredit Simonides to this day, as they cannot discredit the forensic evidence. Next episode, we will discuss the other main manuscript of the critical text, the Codex Vaticanus. Talk to you then. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, share with your friends, and leave us a review. Also, check us out at blue-collartheology.com. There you will find full transcripts of each episode, the resources I used in study, and be able to join the discussion or ask questions. You can also follow and reach out to us on Facebook at facebook.com slash bluecollartheology and on Twitter at blue underscore theology. If you'd like to contribute on Patreon, you can find us at patreon.com slash blue underscore theology. Remember, study is hard work, so roll up your sleeves.